Let me ask you a question. Do you ever get frustrated when someone doesn't like what you like? Does that frustrate you? Or when someone likes something that you hate? Do you ever get frustrated like that? You think about like food. How many of you have ever been with somebody who says, no, really, just try this. You're going to love this. No, I hate that. No, try it. I promise you're going to like it. No, I don't like that stuff. Or maybe the flip of that. You're eating something and somebody says, why are you eating that? Don't eat that. That, that. that will kill you. And you know, we've all got opinions about vehicles, don't we? You watch someone post a picture of their vehicle on social media and you immediately get reactions. You know, you know for instance, I, I drive a Ford. And so someone came up to me and I guess thinking that they were wise or clever or original said, well, you know what Ford stands for, don't you? I said, no, please tell me. <laughs> Fix or repair daily. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it could be worse. I used to drive a Jeep. Any Jeep owners in here? Then you know this to be true. This is not just a saying. Jeep stands for just empty every pocket. <laughs> we get frustrated when people don't like what we like or they like something that we hate. You think about your favorite candidate, your favorite restaurant, your favorite team. Am I getting close yet? And here's what I've found. I found that all of us are really good, really natural at evangelism. You say, wait, 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 evangelism, that's like one of the most uncomfortable topics in church life. That's the one thing I struggle with the most. That's something I'm really not good at at all. Well, you may be misunderstanding a basic definition of what an evangelist is. One of the definitions, according to Merriam-Webster, is this. Simply an enthusiastic advocate. An enthusiastic advocate. Now here's my basic premise today. And hopefully everything I say today will support this basic premise. You don't have to have a spiritual gift of evangelism. You don't have to be a skilled communicator, preacher, teacher, otherwise. You don't have to be an excellent, compelling writer. You just have to be someone who so closely follows Christ, who's so in love with Jesus, who's so appreciative of what God has done in your life through Christ that you're an enthusiastic advocate. You may communicate that advocacy sometimes in clumsy ways. You, you may occasionally step on someone's toes with your enthusiasm about Jesus. You may offend their sensibilities or their preferences. They may not want to be around you when it comes to talking about Jesus, but that's okay because they're not around you. They don't want to be around you during football season either. But those things that we love, those things that we're passionate about, we advocate for. Listen, I'm talking about someone who so is in love with Jesus that they want the same for everybody else. Who so has experienced the love of Jesus that they want other people to have experienced that themselves. And because of that, they really hate the thought that that person might not follow King Jesus. Or even worse, that they might not even have ever heard how. That thought is just unthinkable to them. Listen, it's true. As we look at this text today, we can't and won't all be Peters and Andrews or James and, and John. But every follower of Jesus can be, should be, must be one who is called out of this world and its pursuits and who is willing to call out others 
to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that two things at the least would happen today. This is my plea to you. And, and what I will plea to the people in this room today and those who will hear this message. One, Father, is that you would call people out of darkness into light today. Those whose lives are absent you. Those who are trapped in, in sin, whether they know it or not. Those who are under the dominion of the enemy, whether they acknowledge him or not. Those who need deliverance and salvation and new life, not just a tweaked life, an improved life, but new life. And Father, those who are yours today, I pray you call out to service, to ministry, to mission, that very consciously, enthusiastically, truthfully, honestly, we would say, what do you want me to do, Jesus, because I'll do whatever. Where do you want me to go? Because I'll go wherever. Use me as you see fit. So, Father, have your way with us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, our text is Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 25. If you've got your Bible, open it to Matthew 4, 18 through 25. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's talk just for a moment what's happening here and sort of set up the story about these first disciples. Matthew's gospel doesn't contain the calling of all of the disciples, but merely focuses on these four. And we can find stories of others in the other gospel accounts, just these four primarily. As you see this calling, it seems just sort of maybe um, an amazingly irrational response. Like Jesus is out there and he calls some guys in a boat that are fishing and says, hey, come follow me. And they just drop everything and go. And I don't get it. It doesn't seem to make sense to me. But this was not their first exposure to Jesus. Just a quick review and some comparisons to some other Gospels. John the Baptist had already addressed a couple of these at least when he introduced them to Jesus. Remember, we saw this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. This is what I'm doing here. But there's one coming after me who's mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What Jesus is going to do is different than what I'm doing. What I'm doing is external. It's symbolic of what you have told me you're doing, which is repenting. What Jesus is going to do is internal. He's going to change your life. He's going to put his spirit in you, and he introduces them to them. In John's gospel, the first two of these, and probably John also, had already attached themselves to Jesus in some way after his baptism at the Jordan. They had already begun to be following him, and we can see this in John chapter 1, around verse 35, and, and following those. Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, has another story of calling and calling out to the boats and 
challenged them to follow him. But this calling that we see recorded in Matthew is, is a bit different. There's something about this calling that's very definitive, uh, very distinct. While these men had already begun to be enamored with Jesus, curious about Jesus, following Jesus in some way, um, after seeing Jesus inaugurated at his baptism, declared by the Father's voice, which they heard audibly, this is my son, they'd gone back to fishing. It hadn't really changed their life, but now this calling is about to upend everything. And in this calling, Jesus is showing them and really showing us too that, that my calling on your life is not just a momentary interruption that sends you back to what you were doing before and leaves you like you were before. This wasn't just a blip on your life radar. This wasn't just a momentary event. I'm calling you to something totally new. I'm going to remake you and I'm going to reorder your life. And your whole future and everything is going to change. Will you come and follow me like that? Do you want to just add me to your life just in case, like an insurance policy? Or do you want to come follow me as king with all the right and all the authority to ask of you, to command of you whatever I will? This is a different sort of calling. So their immediate response might appear to be irrational to us. They just dropped everything. And in James and John's case, they didn't just drop their nets. They dropped dad too. Dad, you got it. You can, you can take it from here. But it wasn't. When they realized that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the promised one of God, the coming king, when they, when they got, and this is so critical, I almost want to just plant here for a moment, but I won't have time to finish. This is so critical to the storyline. It wasn't just Jesus' words that compelled them. It was Jesus, who he was, when they realize who Jesus was, this is the king. This is what the Old Testament in its entirety has prepared us for, has, has promised to us. They eagerly followed. How could we not? How could we not? When you get who Jesus is, when you really get it, here's my, here's my conviction. I, I'm, I'm certain about this. When people really get who Jesus is, you don't have to do very much to convince them to follow him. It becomes just obvious, self-apparent. I mean, this is the promised king, the one who's bringing in a new kingdom, the one whose kingdom will reign forever and ever. Don't you want to be in on this? This is Jesus. And it's interesting when you see Jesus call these disciples, it doesn't really sound optional, does it? It doesn't really sound optional. Hey, guys, are you busy? If you don't have anything better to do, I got an idea. You can come and follow me if you like. If you don't, it's cool. Keep doing what you're doing. It really is much more command than invitation. He, he's telling them to do something. He's, he's issuing an imperative. This is a command to them. As Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon, his terminology was this. Jesus is issuing an imperial summons. How do you say no to that? If the king calls you to appear... If the, if the king commands you to do something, drop something, pick up something, you do it. As the king of kings, Jesus had more than just the authority. He has the right to call these people to, to leave whatever they're doing, whatever it is, and to ask them to do whatever he wants them to do. He gets to do that. And sometimes I think we make a parallel here that's not exactly precise. This is not a gospel call per se. Jesus is inviting these people to become uniquely his disciples 
people he's going to train up and develop and people he's going to send out. It's not a gospel call per se, but the principles here of a gospel call really still apply. When you think of how the gospel is introduced to us, the message of the coming kingdom because of the king who has come, Jesus, and what our response to that is, and we see how that's played out in the other gospels, you see it always begins with a command, a command to repent. When the good news, which is what gospel is, the declaration that the king has come to invade this dark kingdom, that the kingdoms of this world ruled by this prince of the power of the air will be defeated and destroyed and Jesus will meet him on the field of battle. He'll face him down in temptation. He'll conquer his kingdom by delivering those from his possession, those who are demon-possessed. He'll, he'll drive out sickness and disease. He'll drive and force back that kingdom and invite people out of it from darkness into light. And ultimately, that kingdom will be forever and finally defeated until his kingdom alone prevails. That this kingdom has come brings about a necessary response. If that's true, if what Jesus has said is true, if the Old Testament's true and Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, then our response is repent. And we see this again and again in the Scriptures. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter's preaching to the crowds around the temple. He's on the temple steps at Pentecost. And remember, they had just crucified Jesus, and the crowds had turned so violently against Jesus, and the disciples even rightly feared they would turn against them too. But now, because the Holy Spirit has come, he's empowered and confident, and he's not fearful anymore, and he's standing there speaking to thousands, and he says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When Paul is declaring the gospel to the religious but pagan Athenians on what we call Mars Hill, the Areopagus. They're right on the, down the hillside from the Acropolis where all the pagan temples were. What does he say? These times of ignorance, I can imagine him almost pointing up the hill. <laughs> these temples, this stuff, these places. These times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. It's the king coming and saying, repent, turn, stop following the king of this world, stop following your own wishes and desires as if you were king, stop living as if there is no king and there's no accountability anywhere, come and follow the king. When Paul was on trial, near the end of his ministry, Acts chapter 26, and he's describing in his own words what his ministry was about. He's standing before King Agrippa. He says this in verse 19. He says, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What was the heavenly vision? It was a command. When Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus didn't say, hey, you want to you follow me? He commanded him. He, he conquered him, actually, and commanded him to follow him. And he says, I was not disobedient to that vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem, then throughout the region of Judea, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing these and keeping with their repentance. And then he said this, For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. I want you to catch that phrase for a minute. I did this, and their response was this. I didn't give them a gentle invitation. I gave them a command from the king, and it ticked some of them off. Who are you, and who is he that you claim to be king? The reason they wanted to kill him is because he commanded them to repent, not because he invited them 
into a personal relationship. Not because he invited them to give King Jesus a try. We see that sometimes in modern pop evangelism, don't we? Just give Jesus a try. What have you got to lose? What have you got to lose? Just try him out. Perhaps you won't be disappointed. Perhaps you'll like what you find. Perhaps you'll enjoy the experience. But that's not how Jesus comes. Jesus comes as king, and his messengers declare him as king. And the only right response to the king is, repent, turn from what you're doing. Don't you understand this is the king? Follow him, and that's the message. And so what did they all do? They respond immediately, not reluctantly. That's what Peter did. It's what Andrew did. It's what James did. It's what John did. Now, now stay with me for a moment here, because this is critical, okay? This is critical. I think sometimes we take a passage like this, and that famous phrase that Jesus uttered, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men, and with a very heavy hand, we say to everybody, listen, this is his message to you just like it was to them. And that's only partially true. We're not all going to be apostles. In fact, there are no modern apostles. That era is done. We're not all going to be evangelists. We're not all going to be preachers and teachers. We're not all going to be, in, strictly, in strict terms, missionaries. God is not calling everyone like he called them. But the truth is this. Some of those that God calls then and now, he does call to give up everything. Listen to what I'm saying. And this is why I, I, just, I had this weight about me this morning as I was praying and thinking about this message and the effect it might have on people. I thought some of that rich, fertile ground of those that God might be calling are on winter retreat right now, but they're not the only ones. It's not just the teenager. It might be the retiree. Some of the people that God calls, he does, in fact, call to give up everything for his sake, to leave behind everything to follow him. There are some that God does call to be like Peter. Peter, you're not going to be a fisherman anymore. That's not going to be your career. Peter, you're not going to be around Jews exclusively anymore. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Peter, you're not going to live a comfortable life anymore with family and friends in the little village you grew up in. In fact, you're going to go to Rome, and there you're going to be crucified. But it'll be worth it to follow me. Peter famously said along the way of following Jesus, Mark chapter 10, verse 28, See, we've left everything and followed you. When Peter said that to Jesus, he, he thought he was declaring that he'd made the ultimate sacrifice. I've, I've left everything for you. And Jesus responded back with resounding words that you and I need to hear when we're doing that equation in our mind, is following Jesus worth it? Listen to Jesus' immediate response. Truly, I say to you, I can almost imagine Jesus' finger out even with emphasis. Truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children with lands. What was he saying? Yes, you're leaving your immediate family. Yes, you're leaving your hometown. But you're going to be part of a much bigger family. It's a picture of the church that he's building. You're going to have many brothers and sisters and many fathers and mothers. 
many children. And then, listen to what he says. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. You're going to receive more than you can imagine in eternal life. There are some that, people, that God calls to be like Paul, to change your life completely, to reorient everything. You talk about a complete reversal. You want to talk about a picture of repentance to the extreme? Not just physically going this way, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Everything had to turn around for Paul. He made Paul the tip of the gospel spear to the nations. And that was at great personal cost to Paul, through great personal suffering. Paul writes about this a bit in Romans chapter 15, verse 19. Listen to his description. He says, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. If you're looking at a map, it's Jerusalem through Syria, through the corner of Turkey, down the coast of Greece, up the other coast. It's a huge area. He says, all over this place, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. I've gone to all these people in places and I've told them about King Jesus. And I've commanded them to repent, believe in him, and enter his kingdom. I've done this. But then he writes this, and I want you to hear what I'm saying. Right after those words, Romans 15, 20 and 21. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That's a missionary. Now listen, there are still places where there are people who have never heard and what I pray for, and I want to challenge you to pray for as a member of this church family with me, is that God would not only call out people to go to those places and to those people, but God would call out people from this place and from our people to go to those places and people. Now that, that's pioneering missionary work. It's people that look and see, look, I'm willing to leave behind the Timothys to pastor here in places like Ephesus. A lot of unbelievers, but believers too. I'm, I'm willing to leave behind the work that's in Corinth or Thessaloniki. I want to go to the places where no one has gone. And, and I pray that God would send some of us to do that. We're, we're not all called to be that. I get it. But I believe that some of us are. And maybe some in this room. And this is why... For us, we're intentionally transitioning some language that we use in regard to what we think God expects of us as his people, members here at this church, Calvary. For a long time, we used the phrase, everyday missionaries. We want to be everyday missionaries. And to the extent that we understand that we're called out from this world, but we're still called to reach the people in this world, that's still true. But I want to make a distinction because we're not all that. And I want to use a biblical term instead. You're going to hear us using this more and more and more. In fact, you've seen it. You'll see it on the wall when you go down to the rock. In large lettering, 2 Corinthians 5.20. What does it say? Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What we are, what we do. God makes his appeal through us because we're his ambassadors. Wherever you are. At school, 
Your primary responsibility, though I commend you for being an A student, is not that. On the athletic field, I hope you'll excel, but that's not your primary responsibility. It's this, where you work, it's not simply to succeed and earn a good income or to be a blessing to other people and employees. It's to be this. If you're staying at home with your children, this is the focal point of your parenting. If you're a retiree, this is the reason for the relationships that you have and the influence you have over your family down the generations, to be an ambassador for Christ. And so we're changing that term because I want to acknowledge the distinction. I pray that God will call some out to those unreached, unengaged people, that God will call some out to the hard-to-reach and hard-to-engage people, that God will send some folks into difficult places. Um, so some people that God calls, he calls to give up everything. But everyone that God calls, he calls to give up something. Everyone that he calls, he calls to give up something. There's not a person in history, nor will there ever be, that Jesus calls and says, you know what, you're, you're good. I just, you know, I just want to get your attention for a moment. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep living like you're living. Keep your priorities the same. Make sure your values are untouched. Don't change what you do with your time or your resources. Don't change how you lead your family or how you go to work. Don't change what you want to do in your future. Just stay where you are. That never happens. That never happens. Everyone's called to give up something to follow him. For these disciples, the obvious object lesson was this. You've got to put down those nets. You've got to leave it behind. You don't go back. Later, this will be a temptation for the disciples, by the way, when Jesus is crucified and they're not yet sure about anything called resurrection. All they know is that Jesus is dead and they go back to fishing again. And he reminds them, this is not who you are. It's not what I called you to do. This is not what your life is. Remember, we left this life behind. Don't go back to it again. What do you have to put down? What do you have to leave behind in order to faithfully follow Jesus, in order to be an enthusiastic advocate of Jesus? What's, what's holding you back from that? What's keeping you from doing what God wants you to do? I just made a list of things that at different times and places in my life have held me back and maybe... They'll be true for you too. Maybe it's just comfort and ease. I mean, we prefer that, honestly, I think. We just want things to be easy and comfortable, stress-free. I want to be pushed. We want to do things that are hard. I think sometimes, and for a lot of us, this is a critical one, we're just fearful about the unknown, which is really a question of trust, by the way. I, I'm not sure what God would do. God forbid if I say, God, I'll do anything you want me to do, you'll send me to Africa or India. And we're fearfully unknown because we don't trust in the goodness of our Father. Sometimes it's just control, self-sufficiency. We labor under the delusion that we can plan out everything and we can manage it and we can control it. Sometimes some of us in this room are given the gift, the precious gift, of chaos. Sometimes we're given the precious gift of pain that reshapes our thinking. Sometimes things that we love and cherish are taken away from us, not to punish us, but to prepare us for what God has for us. Sometimes it's just 
I mean, let's, let's, let's admit it, it's just selfishness. It's materialism. I don't want to give up anything. I'm trying to accumulate things. I'm trying to enjoy things. I'm not trying to sacrifice things. I'm not trying to abandon things. For some of us in this room, it's your pet sins and your bad habits. Because to follow Christ faithfully means you can't be that anymore, and you can't do that anymore. For others, it's just excuses, rationalizations. Not now. It's not a good time. I'm, I'm ill-prepared. I'm not the best suited for this. Surely there are others. Sometimes we even use our theology as a weak excuse. Well, I believe in the sovereignty of God. So if I don't do it, somebody will. And while on a theoretical level that may be true, God will accomplish His purposes. Woe be to those who deny the call of the King and disregard His commands. In his little commentary on Matthew called Exalting Jesus in Matthew, David Platt writes this. He says, The costly call to abandon everything for Jesus can be stated another way. We lay down all things so that we live for one thing, to honor the King. To follow Jesus means to hold loosely to everything else and to cling tightly to the person of Christ and the mission of his kingdom. This may sound extreme to some people, but we can't forget who the me is here. To lay everything down in your life doesn't make sense until you realize who the king is. Once you realize this, leaving behind all things is the only thing that makes sense. And this is the call. So Jesus invites these men to come and be part of that. To become part of what he's doing in the world. To become part of this kingdom that he's calling people into. And that's why the next uh, part of this text describes this message of the kingdom. With these men now following him, these men now learning from him, becoming like him, he goes throughout all Galilee, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now I want to do this just very succinctly because we'll talk about this much more in the days to come. But what is the essence of this message? That phrase that we see there, the, the gospel of the kingdom, what is the message there? Well, simply put, and if you've been here the last several weeks, you've heard this in different ways and stated in a lot of different uh, uh, ways. The arrival of the Messiah signals the arrival of the kingdom. The king is here, and now the kingdom of God is here in a unique way. And those who repent and believe can have access into that kingdom. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to deliver you. I'm here to give you a new life. I'm here to take away your sins. Not just forgive you of them, but to free you from them. Those who repent and believe have access into this kingdom. And to those who come into this kingdom, your sins are forgiven, you're made free, and future blessings untold, unimaginable, are promised to you. That's the thumbnail sketch of the message of the kingdom. King is here. Bring about a kingdom. Here's how you enter that kingdom. And here are the benefits and blessings of being in that kingdom. And then you see this statement of Jesus just healing. By the way, if you have questions about the healings of Jesus, and you've heard some teachers here or there, some false teachers I might note, teaching you things like healing is always part of the gospel. Healing is always God's intention. For everyone that God saves, He always intends to heal. People who will co-opt and misuse Old Testament promises about our spiritual and eternal salvation from sin and change that to mean we get physical healing in this life, like by his stripes we're healed, which clearly speaks to the atonement of Christ for sin. What is the right way of understanding healing today? 
What is a proper, healthy, God-honoring, people-encouraging, faith-building theology of healing? Come tonight, our Sunday night service. That's our theme. We'll talk about healing and God's plan and God's promise to us. But what was the purpose here? How is it that Jesus is going from place to place, synagogue to synagogue, village to village, and he's preaching this message, and all those who are sick, and those who are demon-possessed, and those who are paralytic, and all those things are being brought to Jesus. Well, these miraculous works serve two related purposes. This is the point. This is one of those peak moments of supernatural activity in the world, God's great display of his goodness in the world. One is to demonstrate that the kingdom is present, and this kingdom is powerful. It's to validate the king. As Jesus comes in, he's demonstrating in every way that he is who he claims to be. He's going to show his superiority over the natural world. He's going to command the wind and the waves. He's going to show his superiority over the spiritual world. Demons have to obey him and flee. He's going to show his superiority to sickness, to the infirmities that afflict people and humanity. He is the king. The kingdom is here. It's present. He's powerful. He will defeat the enemy. And it's also to foreshadow what life is going to be like in a future kingdom. Because this is our eternal promise, right? We often read a passage like this at funerals. Maybe someone will read it at yours one day. And they'll talk about in Revelation where there's no more crying, no more mourning, no more sadness, no more pain, no more dying. That is implicitly also telling us that until that future kingdom comes, those things will be present for many of us. There will be sickness. There will be sadness. There will be suffering. There will be pain. There will be mourning. There will be tears. But one day in a future kingdom, those things will be gone. And what Jesus is showing is, I'm giving you a glimpse, giving you a snapshot of what will ultimately be ours because of my rule and reign. I will defeat all of your enemies sin and death, and all of its many effects, all this is coming. So the question for us really becomes this one. It really becomes this one. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? Thirteen different times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says those words to people, follow me. What does it really mean? Because even the passage I read to you, I don't know if you caught it, but there are two different statements of following him. On the one hand, you've got those fishermen who gave up everything, as they would later say, to follow him. They went where Jesus went. They did what Jesus did. You know, for them, this was a literal calling, right? Follow me wasn't some sort of theoretical, ethereal, hypothetical thing. Yeah, gotcha. Following you. This meant, all right, where are we going? What are we doing? What do you want from us? But you see, at the end of that passage, huge crowds. Huge crowds. I mean, how could they not? Look what he's doing. Everybody's got a story to tell and so many witnesses to what he had done. I mean, this stirred up just like it would do today. The only difference is it was only word of mouth then. It wasn't social media, the internet to spread the word. But it ripples through these towns and villages. And he's got huge crowds following him. There's a huge difference and being a disciple who abandons everything to follow Jesus. And someone who's impressed or amazed or intrigued and follows Jesus like a fan. Having a following is quite different than having 
sold out, committed, I'll go wherever you want me to go, do whatever you want me to do, die if I need to, followers. These are different things. So what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? It means at the very least that we will submit to his authority. He's the king. I say, I'll come under your authority. I recognize your right to command, which means I'm going to surrender my sense of autonomy too. I'm not an independent kingdom. I'm not a monarch. You have authority and sovereignty over me. I'll yield to you. What do you want me to do? I'm under your lordship, under your kingdom. And it means, as we see in the life of the disciples, it means you're going to follow regardless. You're going to persevere regardless of the cost. You're not just going to follow when he's feeding you or healing you or saving you from disaster or storm. You're going to follow him, if need be, all the way to a cross. You're going to take up your cross and follow him. It means regarding him as master of your life. Wherever you lead, I'll follow. It means I'm going to trust you with my life. It means if I don't understand what you're telling me to do because you're my good father, you're my sovereign king, I will trust you and do what you say. I will yield my life to your control, to your sovereignty. And I want you to know this in the passage. Where I said earlier that we won't all be exactly like these apostles, I get that. I think that's just recognizing reality and truth. Following does always lead to becoming. You don't follow Jesus. You can't. You can't follow Jesus and stay like you are. It doesn't happen. It won't happen. It can't happen. Following always leads to becoming. Jesus says, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to reshape you. I'm going to make you into something new that you never were before. I'm going to make you into fishers of men. I think we overplay sometimes that these guys were so ignorant and uneducated, etc. That's not the point. The point is you were doing this, but I'm going to make you into this. The point is you were passionate about this, but I'm going to make you passionate about that. The point is you would spend your hours and your life until you died doing this, but I'm going to use you up doing this for my glory and for the good of so, so many people. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, speaking of this dynamic relationship of following Jesus, a disciple is not above his teacher. But here's a, an emphatic statement, uh, a propositional truth. Everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. I mean, that was the point of inviting them to follow him. Not just that I'm going to give you a task to do, but you're going to be like me. You're going to be like I am. And you're going to do what I would do. And that's how you're going to be my representative. Because when I'm no longer physically present, but my spirit is here to empower you, you're going to do my works wherever I send you. So followers of Jesus are faithful to their king. They're faithful to this king. And followers of Jesus become enthusiastic endorsers, so they become fishers of men. That just means something as ordinary as talking about who you love and what you love and talking about what's happened to you and how it's changed you and talking about the hope that you have that others don't have, talking about how you handle sickness and sorrow, difficulty and hardship, how you face death like the death of a family member or a friend because you have King Jesus. So my challenge to you today is 
simple and I think obvious. Are you a follower of Jesus or are you a fan of Jesus? Are you a follower or, or a fan? Message several years ago at a missions conference, Kevin DeYoung was referencing some surveys and said most, most of America has a rather positive view of Jesus. Now, it may be a Jesus of their own construction or imagination, but it doesn't mean that they're followers of Jesus. I was preaching at the harbor last night, and I challenged them just to think about this statistic. I found it to be mind-boggling. I'm not sure if they did. George Barna did a survey several years ago and found that 50% of Americans, now catch this. You tell me if it befuddles you as it did me. 50% of Americans claim to have prayed a prayer asking Jesus into their heart. Now, I'm not asking any of us to evaluate people's hearts. That's beyond our scope. But we do have a responsibility to look at fruit. And just to be honest with ourselves, you tell me where you live and work, where you hang out and play, the people you're around, does it look like to you 50% of the people are followers of Jesus? Or does the 50% statistic bring extra weight and concern when you read Jesus' exchange starting in Matthew 7, verse 21, that many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to have to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. I was thinking about that ridiculous commercial that most of us saw during the Super Bowl. He gets us. Now, first of all, the premise is obvious and self-apparent. Obviously, he gets us. He's a sovereign God. He knows what we think. He knows what we feel. He knows who we are. He knows our frames, that we're but dust. He knows that we're sinners in need of a Savior, else he wouldn't have declared his life mission to be to seek and save the lost. Now, the Jesus that was presented there made it very clear that we don't get him which is really a much more important question. I'll assume that Jesus gets us. That's self-evident to me. And that Jesus didn't preach hate. Well, I don't think anyone believes that. Jesus gave himself for our salvation, as the Bible says, because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's love that drove Jesus. As that commercial showed, even those who would try to depict him don't get him. Because the message that Jesus gave again and again was repent. Was repent. The feet that he washed were the feet of his disciples. And when he washed their feet, it was a picture of the fruit of repentance. Because when you repent, guess what happens? You're clean. You're made clean. Jesus came to make sinners clean. And he washed their feet. And he told them, this, is, this makes you clean. And Peter said, well, if washing my feet makes me clean, then wash every ounce of me, head to toe. You don't need that, Peter. You've been made clean. Our message is not to go into the world and tell everybody, hey, he gets you, you're fine, stay like you are. The message that we take in the world is he will make you clean. He will make you what you are not. He will make you what you must become. Do you get him? Do you get him? He's, he's king. Second question I would challenge you to ask yourself, what are you willing to give up in order to follow Jesus? And I don't have a list here for you, and I'm not the Holy Spirit for you. But there's got to be something here that God's stirring in you. Yes, that doesn't fit me. This is a hindrance to me. This limits me. This is holding me back. What do I have to give up to follow Jesus? What is that? And the last question I want you to challenge yourself with is this. What does Jesus, my King, want me to do? And I know that's a loaded question worth many sermons. I don't mean M-I-N-I. -I, I mean M-A-N-Y. Many sermons. 
And there are many things that Jesus wants all of us to do because they're clearly commanded in Scripture, and we don't have to wonder what His will is. We just have to read the Bible, believe it to be true, and obey it. It tells us that maybe there's a specific calling that He has for your life. Can I give you just a little, a little key that might unlock the mystery of what God wants you to do? I, I'm not saying it's the secret. I'm just telling you it's one key that might unlock what might be for you a mystery because you don't know exactly what God wants you to do with your life. How about this? How about declaring to God with all honesty, sincerity, integrity, I'll do what you want me to do. I'll go where you want me to go. You just tell me. We use this phrase so much that sometimes I think it loses the weight of it, but I would say in a way we would all understand, write him a blank check. No reservations. Because if you're picking your spots, if you're saying, here's what I want you to want me to do, here's what I'm willing to do, if you're going to the king with conditions and stipulations, and you still don't get him, you still don't get him, what is it you want me to do? That's what I'll do. And then see where he leads you to go. I'm going to ask you if you pray with me this morning. Father, Jesus, Father God, as I prayed through the power of your son Jesus, our Savior, our King, I pray that you would call us out today. Call out some to life because right now all they've got is spiritual death. Call some out of darkness because they're trapped there and you're bringing them into the light. Call them out of one kingdom, a, a kingdom that will end not just badly, but will lead to eternal destruction. Father, call them out of that into your kingdom, I pray. And Father, I pray seeing Jesus rightly, seeing, you, seeing your glory in his face, they would ask you, for salvation, for mercy today. They would believe in you and they would repent. Turn from that. Father, save me. Save me from my sin. Save me from my broken life. Save me from a destructive future. Father, save me. I pray they call out to you as you've called them. Father, beyond that, I pray for some in this room who have been redeemed. Father, you would make clear what you're calling them to be and do. Not to simply admire, but surrender. Not simply believe, but to, to act. Your call on those disciples was a call to action. You didn't call Peter and Andrew and James and John to discuss the finer points of the Talmud or rabbinic law or teaching. You said, come, we're going to do something. We're going to do something that's going to change the lives of many. We're going to change people's worlds. Father, I pray you would call us likewise. Call some in this room to change worlds of people. Father, if it's your will, call some to go to places no one's been, no one's going, to places that are hard, challenging, places where real sacrifice is going to be required. Father, for others, call us to abandon that which is keeping us from doing what you want us to do right where we are, right where you've placed us, right with the sphere of influence we have, what's keeping us from being enthusiastic advocates of our King. Call us. And I pray, Father, now our side of this, that we would enthusiastically and immediately obey. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.